0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the CEU Press podcast series. I'm Andrea Talabér and um, today I have three guests with me who will introduce one of the new series of the CEU Press entitled Perpetrators of Organized Violence in Eastern, Central and Southeastern Europe. So I have Iva um, Vukushic, Veronika Gzabalska, and Waitman Wade Born with me. And um, I think we can start with the podcast with um, you, know, you introducing yourselves. You know, what's your academic background? What's your research background? And you know, anything else you would like to add? Eva, you can start us off first. Thanks for inviting us.
1: Um, and it's really nice to be here. So I'm an assistant professor in international history at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Um, I'm a historian. I uh, am a genocide and transitional justice scholar. I recently published a book on paramilitaries in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. And uh, before that, I worked um, uh, at the Special War Crimes Department of the Prosecutor's Office in Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I was a researcher and analyst there, so I helped investigators and, and prosecutors build cases for prosecution. I also spent several years in and around the International Criminal Tribunal for the Former Yugoslavia. So I've been in The Hague since 2009 and have been following trials at various courts. So I guess one could say that I'm also kind of a legal historian. And, and more recently, I've been participating in discussions that have to do with justice for crimes in Ukraine. So I think that's that's pretty much where I'm coming from.
2: Yeah. Again, thank you for having us. So I'm a Holocaust uh, historian. That's, that's sort of my focus and background. And I, I come to this topic, you know, from a couple different directions. My first book was on the German army and the Holocaust in Belarus, so in Eastern Europe, um, you know, looking at, very specifically looking at perpetrators and how they came to be involved in genocide. And then I, in the in the interim period, I wrote a second book, which is on the Holocaust in Eastern Europe, so a, a more, more broad-ranging kind of thing. And my most recent book that will hopefully coming out next year is on the Andovska camp in Lviv in Ukraine. And and that's a book that actually uh, I sort of move into trying to write what Saul Friedlander encouraged us to do, which is sort of the integrated history that includes perpetrators, to use the sort of Hilberg paradigm of perpetrators, victims, bystanders, to include all of those people together. I also am very interested in public history. I was the executive director of the Virginia Holocaust Museum as well before I came to the UK where I'm now at Northumber University in Newcastle. And I'm also a digital humanist, so I'm interested in digital humanities. I have a project creating a historical building information model, a digital model of the Anothra camp, thinking about how um, these kinds of new approaches can help us understand the past, but also to present it. So you know, I sort of have my, my hand in a, lot of, uh, in a lot of dishes as well, and that's kind of where I'm, where I'm coming from.
3: Hi, my name is Weronika Grzewalska. Thanks again for for having me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm a sociologist, currently an assistant professor in sociology at uh, the Institute of Political Studies, Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw. And I am working on social and institutional transformations in Poland and contemporary Central and Eastern Europe. And in particular, and that's what connects me to to this topic, I'm interested in transformations of such spheres as the military, paramilitarism, defense, war in its memory, and right-wing and gender politics. Now, I come to this topic of perpetration and perpetrators from a little bit of a different angle or perspective, because in my past and current academic work, I have mostly looked at resistance to political violence, or in other words, how citizens in Central Europe have and continue to organize themselves to protect their states and communities from imperialist violence and to fight back against perpetration. So in other words, I look more on those law-abiding civil movements that are engaging in democratic self-defense, and I Wrote a book about the gender politics of the uh, World War II armed underground in Poland. I wrote my PhD on paramilitary and pro-defense organizing in contemporary Poland. So these are my, my topics. But at the same time, and that's what connects me to the topic of perpetration, everyone who studies these, um, you know, civic militarism and national militarism will always become very aware that oftentimes they are Janus-faced, as, as phenomena, and that the virtues can very easily turn into vices. And that's today we also see that with a lot of uh, paramilitary vigilante and militia, militia movements emerging or re-emerging in the region, uh, that somewhere on the margins, in the grey zones, some actors are not as civil and some actors actually may hark back to legacies of extremism, political violence. And that is what I think I want to bring in.
0: Thanks for the introductions. The three of you have a rather varied background. I mean, first of all, I kind of want to want to ask you about, you know, what the series is about, because you know we have um, Yugoslavia, the International Criminal Court with eva with Waitman, you have expertise in the Holocaust, and um, with Veronica, you have expertise in these you know, various kind of social movements. What what is the you know what would you like to focus in the series, and what is the series about, and what is the kind of rationale behind it? I would say from my perspective, um, and I think this is also the sentence pretty much that's on the website,
1: that this new series kind of aims to publish work contributing to this new or, you know, growing field. It's always relative what is new and what is not new, but let, let's say a growing field of, of perpetrators studies. But of course, with this regional uh, focus and from my perspective, I would say that we have, of course, a large number of works that deal with certain examples or certain contexts. For example, the Holocaust or Rwanda. But I would say that this region of the world has been somewhat less kind of covered by scholarship. I know certainly for the former Yugoslavia, research on perpetrators is is actually quite rare. So I think this is uh, something that we definitely could and would like to, to see. And uh, I think uh, when it comes to these other instances of mass uh, violence or or works that have to do with kind of memory or the way this memory of past violence influences a uh, current developments and current engagement of, uh, of citizens potentially violently, I think those would be some topics or, or this could be, for example, something that I would call the rationale uh, for it. But I also understand that there's probably going to be some surprises and that I'm sure there's authors and researchers working on projects that, you know, we might not be imagining uh, yet as, as editors of this series. So I'm also kind of open to surprises, I, I guess.
2: Yeah I think and I would just add to that I think that it's important to emphasize that this is not a it's not a holocaust focused or or limited to the holocaust in the sense of the series you know obviously we we encourage that and I'll be happy to to review those sorts of submissions but I think one of the areas that this ser- series has a lot of potential even within holocaust studies is to look at some of the groups that are perpetrators that have not received the same level of attention um, and in particular non-german perpetrators is is a sort of a great way of, of pitching some of the thrust of the series you know there's there are lots and lots of really important studies to be done and to be published on the agency and the participation of local populations in in genocide and again it it's important i think also to emphasize the temporal scope of of the series which is again not just the holocaust it's not even necessarily just 20th century and we're very interested and encouraging for people to submit proposals that, that cover all different uh, examples of mass violence and genocide, whether it's the crimes under Stalin or, or other examples. And so I think you know that that's part of the, I think, selling point of the series is that it's, it's going to be multidisciplinary, but also have a great deal of coverage in terms of topics. And I think we can talk later on about uh, the fact that there are lots of different entry points into this particular series that may not be sort of what the the most traditional example of the perpetrator study might be.
3: So just to underscore what both Eva and Waitman already stressed, as editors, we agreed that we made this decision to broaden the scope of of the series from Just a very narrow focus on just perpetrators and perpetration and to kind of venture out into related subfields and lines of inquiry. And through that, what we discussed before is that we want to make sure that we remain open to works that are innovative, that are engaged and that truly speak to current challenges in our regions. And one line of inquiry that we want to remain open to is is studies on historical legacies and memory of organized violence. And here, of course, you know, Central and Eastern Europe, for one, has been called the bloodlands of Europe by Snyder and other historians. And because it has this very painful history of violence, both one coming from the outside, which was already mentioned, you know, the Nazi and Soviet crimes, but also one coming from the inside. And here I refer to the dark legacy of different extremist fascist movements that were popular in the interwar period and that, you know, targeted internal enemies. And I think it's really important since these ideologies, these movements are to some extent coming back and are being reconstructed uh, in different ways in contemporary societies in the region, we also want to remain open to works that explore these reverberations and experiences in contemporary culture, politics and societies.
0: We keep talking about perpetrators, but um for the purpose of the series, how do you actually define who a perpetrator is? I don't know which one of you would like to start on this
2: i mean i, I could take a take a stab at I guess the beginning of, the, of of the discussion. I think one of the things that we agreed on is that that you know that these are people who are in some ways directly involved in mass read organized violence. Now, I think it's important to, to highlight that you know directly involved doesn't necessarily mean physically involved, but you know it can be decision makers, it can be critical enablers, these kinds of things, which is a it's, which is a way of sort of expanding the scope as well. I think, in a certain sense, it can also be helpful to say who is not a perpetrator, perhaps for the for the purposes of the series. So, you know, things like crime in general may not be. You know, appropriate in that sense. Um, there is violence, but I think we are looking for some form of organized mass violence, mass atrocity, these kinds of things. And I, I don't think that really limits the submissions in a particularly onerous way, because as Veronica pointed out, you know, we are interested in things like memory and uh, representation, and you know, legal studies of prosecutions. So there's a lots of different ways that a potential author could inject herself into this or find a way that their study fits into the series but it is a focus the focus is on you know the perpetrator side and on the the actors who are carrying out the violence in some way shape or form i think that's that's probably the most critical distinction for me
1: and and maybe here I can only just add a couple of words. I absolutely agreed with uh, what Wei was just saying. But I, I think also here we can think about, of course, sort of is, is it individuals? So these could be, you know, grassroots or political decision makers or commanders or all kinds of individuals. But we can also think about institutions, of course, and different kinds of uh, organizations, political parties, uh, state institutions. So this is also, I think, something that could fall under uh, our scope. And and I would also invite uh, uh, potential authors, you know. Some of these definitions often vary from the type of project that you are involved in. So if I, for example, wrote a book about paramilitaries, and there's a million definitions that people use in different contexts. And then I said, for the purposes of this book, paramilitary is an X. So we also invite authors very much to come to us with their own understanding. I think this book belongs here because of reasons A, B, and C. And, and, and that's you know, also something that we are very much uh, uh, open to. And then, as I was saying earlier, some, some submissions might, you know, kind of surprise us. And I would love that, actually. I would love to, to find out about all the different ways in which scholars understand what we're trying to do and come to us with these really innovative and, and interesting takes. So don't be afraid of, you know, of that. And if it seems like it's a perpetration and a perpetrator situation to you on your project, we're absolutely open and, and would love to hear about it.
0: Just to touch upon this concept a bit more, um, I was wondering maybe, Eva, if you could say something a bit about the ethics of doing research on perpetrators. I'm kind of turning to you because, you know, you obviously worked um, on Yugoslavia a lot. You have experience in The Hague. So I was wondering what were your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, there's been, a, a, it's a very complicated question, and I'm sure both Veronica and Wade are going to have something to, to to say about that. And it's been something that I think scholars in the field are more and more uh, thinking about it. There is, you know, um, uh, handbooks coming out in the last uh, couple of years. For example, Shell and uh, Jesse had a, a book on researching perpetrators. Uh, Nittle and Goldberg had a handbook. Uh, Hola also has a handbook on atrocity crimes. So all of these works I think are very informative in how to reproach the, the broader field and how to do this work. I think ethics, of course, are also something that scholars will often have to go through in their own institutions if they're thinking about projects. And I think that's a very, it can be a very good development because I think in, you know, some years ago, it was quite a bit sort of came came to the person themselves and the scholar themselves to kind of see what they thought was ethical or not. So I think it's good to have some kind of guidelines. I think it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to do that needs to be kind of the, the rule of the game should be assessed on a case-by-case basis. Recently also uh, Hinton and Robin published, I think with Stanford University Press, a book about for example, doing interviews and, and research on perpetrators. I can only speak for, um, for myself. I think it's very necessary work. I absolutely think it's crucial to understand actors who hurt others and attack civilians if we want to understand armed conflict and potentially work to prevent it or punish it. So I think it's absolutely crucial work. But at the same time, I think there's th- things that one should avoid. So for example, I don't supervise PhD students yet, but I supervise master's students. I would never send them, quote unquote, into the field. To interview people left and right, and it's the same from from my perspective for survivors. There's a certain set of skills and, and and understanding that that people should have before that. Always advise caution, especially kind of advise younger scholars to speak to their maybe more senior uh, colleagues about how to navigate uh, some of these very complicated ethical questions. But as a as a broader question, should we do this kind of research? Um, absolutely, and I I don't think it's a controversial question anymore the way it maybe was some some years ago.
2: I just might add one thing. I think one of the things that I, I, I find, again, I've, I've highlighted this at the beginning, but I find really exciting about this series is that it's the complexity of, again, in my case, but you know even in other ex- historical examples of the sort of non-German perpetrators, they often occupy a difficult position because uh, in some ways they can be victims in certain scenarios, in certain circumstances, or certain elements of or, or in certain time periods, but then they can also be perpetrators in a different one. And so, you know, that's one of the, I think, really selling points of the series is that if people are working on that, you can really begin to highlight the ways in which potentially being a victim impact being a perpetrator. Um, you know, if we're thinking about the Stalinist period before World War II and then World War II, there, there are interactions there. But it also, you know, again, as as is pointing out, it requires a certain touch a, de- a deft touch with the research to be able to understand and navigate that and you know my personal opinion in, in some ways is that the the ethics review process is something that was it was an attempt to overlay something that came from the hard sciences onto the humanities and depending on your institution or depending on you know where you're getting the guidelines it may or may not be appropriately applied. I remember just as an example, when I was doing research for my book, the the ethics review board at my university wanted to know what I was going to do to warn potential perpetrators that they could suffer negative social or legal effects if they told me if they told me, you know, what they were doing. And I, I sort of, you know, that's not really my job to to protect you from things that you have done. You know, the the ethics review process is really designed to protect vulnerable populations. Um, People with diminished capacity, or minors, or victims of 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 assault, these kinds of things. It's not there to protect people from, you know, the the effects of what they've done. You know, but again, I I can only highlight or or, or reinforce what Eva said. Is I think doing this work is important. I think it's 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 ethical to do that. And I you know, and, and I would encourage people who are doing sort of the interview studies, the the local studies, and we'll get to this in a little bit, where a lot of this kind of interview process takes place. But I think. Eva's advice is incredibly well given that, you know, oral history is hard. And I think a lot of people think oh it's just going out and interviewing people. But actually it's it's quite difficult and it, it, there's a whole methodology and and theoretical framework to it that you really need to to practice and be immersed in before you before you start to do it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, the, it's a question of, you know, you have to gain the expertise to be able to legitimately do this kind of research. And we touched upon this before, but, um, you know, for the series, could you maybe elaborate a bit on what kind of a research you want to publish? You know, are there any potential themes that you are especially interested in or certain methodolo- methodological
3: approaches? Maybe, Veronica, you can start us off on this. No, actually, if possible, I would would prefer to add something to the ethical aspect. Building on what Waitman said about the type of ambiguity and the blurred lines between, you know, uh, perpetrators, bystanders and victims, that this is an extremely important point today. Uh, I mean, it has always been, but especially because, you know, there's this saying in terrorism studies that I sometimes use when talking about these issues in history and in the present, that one man's perpetrator or terrorist is another man's freedom fighter or victim. And this is especially uh, true when we look at a lot of kind of national heroes or resistance heroes in Central and Eastern Europe who often had those dark parts to their legacy as well. And why I'm talking about it as an ethical rather than conceptual issue is because we see that today, unfortunately, these issues are Kind of moving beyond the narrow scope of academia where we can deal with it with our panels, our concepts, our reviewing process, but they're actually entering the realm of kind of hybrid conflict that is going on and they can be weaponized by different actors. And that is also something that I do believe is a big ethical issue that is so far, I think, underrepresented in methodological discussion. How how the way we do research, the concepts we use, what we choose to write about and popularize and what we choose to to leave out may be used by sometimes malign actors too. And that we have to be able to talk about it. And I think we certainly welcome contributions that reflect on these issues too in a novel way.
1: Yes, methodological work uh, uh, as well. If I I may just jump in, just people that are thinking about how to do this properly, because I think with students, for example, often interview is something that kind of, oh, I'm just going to go and interview people. And I'm always like, no, (laughs) because I, I think there's, especially when we're talking about perpetrators, all kinds of implications. You have to think about legal implications about sometimes if you are made aware of a crime that also raises certain legal obligations, and it can get you you know messed up in all kinds of legal trouble. So I always um supervisors as well, I think should would be well advised if they thought three times before sending inexperienced researchers out who don't have the training and the experience to do that. Also when it comes to trauma, we tend to think about trauma as something that applies to to victims, but of course, it can also um, apply to other people that were involved in these contexts of armed conflict and all of that. So I, especially coming from like this war crimes uh, sort of world, I um, am very interested in seeing work that, for example, uses archives from various judicial institutions, be it in The Hague, be it locally, nationally, if you have the legal, if you have the, the language capabilities and, 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 you know, you can study these records, I would love to see that. And I'm also thinking, you know, there's fewer chances of hurting people. If you're, you know, and I always have this uh, awareness. So in, in some ways, um, I'm trying to work with, for example, with my students on archival records and things like that and not have the default to like, OK, go and place X and and uh, interview people. So um, I think the point that Veronica was just raising about like these methodological things that we should be thinking about how to even do this work and what what kind of thing we should be careful about. And, and you know, I would love to to have more thinking about that.
2: No, I, I think you know if, if we're if we're thinking about the kinds of things that we're looking for, I think you know Eva brought up something that I would highlight as well, which is I'm very interested in work that recovers or preserves historical data in the sense that you know one of the things I think we've noticed in the war in Ukraine is how fragile a lot of these sources are, um, archives being destroyed or looted or you know. Being lost, and I think you know it, one of the things this series can do, and again, this gets back to something that I've highlighted already, which is you know the the, the focus on local actors. I'm really interested in, in work that that engages with that, that does sort of the difficult archival work on the ground, but that helps us as a discipline to preserve preserve that information and and get it out to a to a larger audience. You know, because again, in in, in my world, it, it's changing, but for a very long time, the focus was on Germans. And so, you know, German documents sort of held sway, German archives, which are relatively stable, relatively accessible. But now I think appropriately, we're we're focusing on the local collaborators, local perpetrators. And those, the the primary sources, be they oral histories, be they legal documents, be they archival documents, are much more uh, vulnerable in, in a lot of these places, not just from war, but just from, you know, upkeep and neglect and these kinds of things. And so I think studies, I I would like to highlight, you know, studies that are able to sort of bring, bring those relatively inaccessible ideas. And again, because this is a, this is an English language press, you know, so a lot of the value is, is often people taking things that, that may be relatively well understood perhaps in, in local languages, but are not sort of globally visible and making them that way, Uh, you know, so so, that is definitely something that I'm very interested in as well. And then the, the last thing that I, that I would mention is, is something that I'm personally interested in as, a, as an editor. And this is my bias because I, I'm this is the kind of work that I do. But I think that local studies, uh, micro histories um, that really get into the day to day operations, whether it's memory or community relations, these kinds of things are areas that I think have a great deal of potential, particularly when we're looking at these very complex ethnic and political sort of friction points in Eastern Europe. So I, I would love to see those as well.
0: So if uh, someone is interested in sending you a proposal, you know, who they should contact, who they should get in touch with, um, or if they just want to have you know a chat about their project, who is the person to get in touch with?
3: Oh, I believe that... Um... They can get in touch with basically any of us, the three editors, as well as our managing editor of the series, which is Jen McCall. And uh, I hope that this will all be uh, attached to this podcast so that everyone can click on a link and find the emails to all of us.
0: Yes, definitely. All the details and the email addresses can be found in the episode show notes.
2: And I would just add, uh, you know, you're welcome to contact whichever one of us you think perhaps fits more closely, you know, into, into what you're doing only because we can give you a good sort of first read that like, you know, yes, what you're doing, you know, is something that we've been pursuing, but also understand that we all work together as an editorial team, which is great because, you know, we, we bring different um, perspectives to all the submissions. But I would also say, you know, even if what you're doing is something that is, is very different, perhaps, than what we focus on, you know, in our own research, please don't let that prohibit you from submitting. We are we're very interested in all kinds, as we said before, all kinds of topics from, you know, a, a broader temporal spectrum. And, you know, we, w- we would love to, to reach out and to sort of expand, you know, the, the scope of, of perpetrator studies within those as well. Um, so, you know, feel free to sort of pick one of our brains or all of our brains initially. And then as the process becomes more formalized, you know, we, we will definitely look at, you know, any submission that, that again, as Eva pointed out, that you think is is appropriate for the series um, because you may have a great idea that, that we've never thought about. And, and that's that's great.
0: Great, thank you. And I'm really, really looking forward to you know, what you will publish under this series. And I hope you will keep us posted on this. To the listeners, uh, thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our new episodes. And to Eva Waitman, Veronica, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.